0: Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Rules of Investing podcast brought to you by Livewire Markets. I'm your host, Ali Selby. Let's get down to business, shall we? This month, Livewire is running a series on listed investment products with the aim of helping you build the perfect portfolio entirely on the ASX. Throughout this series, you'll be hearing from industry experts to learn everything there is to know about the world of exchange traded products, listed investment companies and listed investment trusts. In today's episode, we'll be sitting down with Alex Ventelon, Head of Research and Investment Strategy for Morgan Stanley Wealth Management Australia. Alex will be taking us through the ins and outs of actively managing a portfolio of listed products on the ASX, as well as his predictions for the industry in the future. If you're an Apple podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a Livewire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to be notified whenever we post content. Not a Livewire subscriber yet? What are you doing? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading event investment minds from Australia and abroad. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alex. I'm really excited to speak with you about the wonderful world of listed products.
1: Hi, Ali, and and thanks very much for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's always a pleasure uh, to be talking about um, um you know a market segment that I'm quite passionate about. Uh, but before we get started, uh, a bit of formalities. Um, I'm a strategist for Morgan Stanley. I'm the head of research, and I am not a financial advisor. So if I do imply or expressly state advice during this podcast. Please be aware that this is general in nature. I have not taken neither yours nor the audience's personal objective uh, into account, nor the financial situation or needs. And so because of this, before acting on any general advice, uh, please consider the appropriateness of the advice having regards to your objective financial situation or needs, and please discuss with your own financial advisor.
0: Okay, let's dive straight in. I'd love to know more about the theory behind passive investment or the efficient market hypothesis. There's a lot of noise in the market at the moment. How efficient do you think markets actually are
1: today? Listen, I I think the market is is doing its work and is doing its work um, in an efficient manner in the sense that any cracks in markets or sectors um, are very quickly reflected into debt and equity markets, right? So we've seen spread windings, We've seen um, equities uh, falling uh, very rapidly. We've seen that very much concentrated on the financial sector. And in terms of efficiency, that reflects uh, what's been happening in the past few weeks uh, in terms of wobbles in the financial sector. Other sectors are fed uh, a lot better such as you know the growth uh, factor or the u.s tech for instance which is further removed from those risks at this point so i would say so far the market has done a pretty good job in terms of translating uh, those uh, wobbles into efficiencies
0: okay so would it be more of a market for active investing right now or passive investing if you feel like it's quite efficient at the moment
1: yeah, listen. That it's been it's been quite efficient in terms of discounting um, future issues, current and future issues, into specific companies and, and sectors. In terms of active versus passive, I believe there's opportunities in both, but certainly the environment for active manager is becoming a lot better this year than what it was in the past couple of years, especially in the aftermath of GFC, where you had this flush of liquidity really supporting the market as a whole and pushing valuation further. It looked like they one-way trade from the outside and now we're seeing a lot more what we call dislocation so stocks trading at very very wide ranges between the better ones and the worst ones in terms of valuation but also in terms of price right so the more dislocation there is in stock markets, the better the hunting ground for active managers, right? So I would say for the very broad uh, of fund managers, there's plenty of opportunities. That's one of the reasons, by the way, we've been so positive on hedge funds versus long-only funds in the last year and a half or so because of this dislocation. Um, But I would say as well that some ETFs, especially in the smart beta space, help us to capture those factors across the market as well. So a blend of both is probably the right answer.
0: I want to take a deep dive into the world of passive funds and ETFs. The first index fund or passive fund was created nearly 50 years ago by John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard Group. Around 17 years later, State Street Global Advisors launched the first ever exchange traded fund or ETF. That was in 1993. It would then take another eight years for ETFs to arrive in Australia. How have passive funds changed the world of investing and how has this transformed the way that Morgan Stanley advises its clients?
1: Certainly, um, I believe um, ETFs have helped a great deal in terms of market transparency, um, meaning that through the ETF, uh, we have access to broad sections of the market and we can see all the holdings within uh, one etf clearly also they've improved the liquidity versus managed fund where the settlement happens in a much uh, a faster fashion and they also help us uh, as i was saying um to access to broad segment of the market at a, a discounted price so all that i think has helped a great deal i think it's also helping a lot for investors that are more focused on getting a very cost-efficient portfolio for the ones that want a simpler portfolio access to the main asset class you can probably replicate a very good multi-asset portfolio with you know four or five ETFs uh, today and your performance uh, wouldn't probably be too bad compared to the more active ones uh, so that's clearly helping for people that are really focused on on low-cost investing I think it's also helping as I said uh, with the rise of, of smart beta and other type of, of indexing to assess some segments of the market that were maybe previously uh, thought about as manager skill right so for example uh styles and factors such as you know uh, quality factor of investing very often managers have a quality bias but this is something that now you can access directly via an etf so probably for less than 40 bips you could get a very similar return to some of the managers that charge over one percent so certainly it's been very helpful across the board and i think for very different type of investors for the um more Uh, retail ones, as well as the more sophisticated ones.
0: I want to get back to something that you mentioned at the start of the interview. There's really been this long-running debate between active and passive managers pretty much since Bogle launched that first index fund back in 1976. You provide advice to your clients on everything from listed equities, managed funds, ETFs, really the whole universe of listed products. So I feel like you probably have a strong view on that debate. Is there a place, a passive and active, in today's market? And if so, you know where would you be allocating to passive and to active in a portfolio?
1: Yeah, it's, it's it's a very good question, and I feel it's a bit of a an, an eternal debate. Um, we've seen, um, you know, probably a lot of the you know broader markets being now well captured with a series of ETFs where one ETF, very often a very cheap one, can give you access to the broad market. So as a default exposure, it's probably a good option. And that's something that we've done more and more of is um, to get the core right, as we like to say in, in our multi-asset models, uh, we've been using more and more ETF because we know that we have the core under control. We know that we have um a very strong exposure where we have very strong market beta right we um, that's very important to us and then around the edges around you know satellite position we'll like to have a bit more risk taking in terms of higher conviction managers and also some more granular ETF investing as well as I mentioned uh, through smart beta ETF so the answer to your question is that Probably today we have quite a, still quite a high, um, a high allocation to passive versus active because our goal from a portfolio management standpoint is, you know, not only to deliver the best risk adjusted return, but also to deliver the best fee adjusted return, right? Mm. So we're very fee conscious. Um, but again, we have nothing against active management when we think the time is right we will go into active because we know that we can capture alpha. And that's also a matter of um, asset allocation decision. right? So right now, we have no exposure to small cap. But historically, when we've been positive on small cap, we've traditionally allocated through active managers because we know we can capture some additional alpha. And as I was making the point earlier on, We're seeing more and more dislocation in markets, so we've been gradually increasing our allocation to active management, and I would expect that to continue in the month ahead.
0: Do you see any place for active large cap equities managers then? Um,
1: I would say yes, but uh, what we have experienced, uh, to, to be very honest with you, is that First of all, we've noticed a lot of managers over time tend to be a quality bias in their portfolios, right? Um, Which means that they will try and see companies that are able to perform in various market conditions, show less cyclicality, uh, probably, which is good. Um, But it also creates a form of crowding in the market. So everyone's invested in a very similar fashion in the very uh, same companies, Right. And last year, for instance, a lot of these companies, by the way, um, tended to be present in the uh, U.S. IT and telecom uh, part of the market. And last year, when you know the Nasdaq Nasdaq started to sell off very aggressively, as you know, bond yields started to to rise uh, quite sharply, um, we've seen a number of quite successful active managers really suffer from that. And what we thought of as as a diversified A blend of managers ended up being not that diversified in the end so that's that's something that um i think was a a good good experience for us and a number of investors in the market that you know most managers tend to exhibit biases right so learning from that, and again, because we want to have the core under control, we want to have the core of our portfolios that follow the market you know directionality because that's where we have our asset allocation views. then um, we've been allocating more to core managers but managers that have a lower tracking error, right? So managers that would have a lower uh, risk budget and managers that would have um, Less freedom in some way. So in the core of the portfolio, we'll like to have things that are a bit more constrained. So managers that are probably a bit system, more systematic as well, able to add alpha on a more regular basis, taking less risk around the benchmark. And then a satellite position where we will go into probably, uh, more, you know, pointy and at the pointy end of the market through managers or through smart beta again.
0: Just for listeners who don't know, could you explain what tracking error is?
1: Oh, yeah, it's the, it's the, the volatility um, of one instrument versus its benchmark, of the return of one instrument versus its benchmark, right? So the higher the volatility, the more the instrument will, will deviate over a certain period over the given benchmark.
0: Okay. Are there any instances where Morgan Stanley believes passive investments should not be used in a portfolio?
1: I mean, to, to me, for for that to happen, you need to be really negative on the index, or you need to be very worried about the, in the, in the index composition, and in which case, you probably shouldn't be investing in there in the first instance. Now, you know, in my world, we're asset allocators, so we we sort of very often have a bit of everything in our models, and it's a sort of scaling game, as I like to call it, so probably... <laughs> Not necessarily, um, asset classes where, uh, we don't want, uh, to be passive, but certainly we are watching some biases, right? With index investing. So for instance, in Australia, um, when, when you're long Australia, implicitly you are quite positive on either the banking sector Mm. or the miners, and or the miners, should I say, one and or the other. Similarly, in the US, if you're positive on the US market, there's the implicit assumption that you're positive on the FANGs, Mm. right? If you're not, if you're positive on US equities without being positive on the FANGs, which would be a rare thing in the the last 10 or 15 years, then either you don't want that exposure as such, as I mean, in terms of S&P 500 ETF. Or you'd want something that would give you a lower exposure uh, to the fang stocks, such as an equal-weighted ETF, right? So you could still capture um, the uh, underlying exposure with have, without having this index bias, right? So that would be one thing. The other one I would mention is uh, I would say it's not something that necessarily prevents you from, or that makes it such that you shouldn't be investing in in, in ETF, but I think. Even if ETFs are widely considered and for some very good reasons are more liquid instruments, right? They, they are tradable, you know, for 99.9% of them every day in a, in a very easy fashion. Investors need to be aware that the liquidity on ETF can dry out as well. And pretty quickly, in times of crisis, we've seen that um, many times in the past, but during the COVID crisis as well, we've had a number of ETF uh, trading on the day way below their underlying NAV, net asset value, right? And, and that's because in the end, they are uh, traded on the stock market. There's a number of buyers facing a number of sellers. And so what we call the bid-ask spread can also widen on the day. So the price that you may pay to get into an ETF or to exit an ETF can be on any given day in times of stress, right? Um, uh, Quite different from the NAV. So it's very important to be aware of that. These uh, spreads will widen in times of of, of crisis in in the various markets. So, um, you know, on the one hand, they're more liquid, but on the other, those spreads can affect your performance quite dramatically if you don't pay attention.
0: I feel like it's also important to note that just like a listed company, not all ETFs will last forever and ever. You know, an ETF could also go vast.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I, I think, yeah. Uh, listen, there, there's, there's two things here. One is one risk that, for instance, in our sort of assessment grid of ETF that we are very much paying attention to is the assets and the management, right? In the ETF, because you got to be aware that, you know, companies that manage those ETFs, they run costs for managing the the ETF. It's not free. It's quite expensive. And so under a certain size in terms of asset management, it's not profitable for the manager, right? And, And if the assets haven't grown significantly in the last six or 12 months, and they still below what do we expect to be break even for the firm, um, then you know the odds of a delisting are fairly high, and that's something that uh, probably would prevent us from investing into an ETF. Actually, going back to your question earlier on, if you're going into assets that are illiquid by nature, difficult to navigate, where the underlying market or and or where the underlying market is of lower quality. Probably going with an active manager that would be able to do the security picking on your behalf is a much better way to go.
0: Mm. I want to look at the other side of the coin. Is there any instance where active management should not be used in investors' portfolios? (laughs) It's a hard question. I'm sorry. I I like (laughs)
1: it. I like it. It's very... uh, it's very interesting. I've never thought about it that way. Um, listen, there's one probably um, obvious instance to me where as a as a portfolio manager, you're embarking on a tactical trade, right? So you decide to allocate more to a given asset class or sector. and um, and you have a defined timeline, right? To, um, to generate performance out of your call. If you want the best out of this trade, uh, very often with a limited, with a short timeline, the best way to get there is using a passive instrument. We believe, right? Because you know that you're gonna get the upside of the market, you're gonna get the better, right? You're gonna get the, the sort of automatic rise of the market. And you will not be negatively impacted if the manager during this period decide to take a massive bet on this or that right and that's something we've seen uh, sometimes with uh, you know peers or or clients that uh, go active uh, with a tactical bet and sometimes and especially a lot of managers you know they take a, a six but very often a one to six months but m- more often one to three year view so if you have a six month call probably they are tilting the portfolio in a way that might not carry good results over six months and you will not get the full upside of the market right you will lag behind so the etf will give you a much purer exposure to the underlying market and will reflect your asset allocation view a lot better so i would say that would be the number one uh, Reasons for for you know favoring um, passive over active in a quite sort of automatic fashion.
0: Mm, I find that really surprising. It almost goes against what research says. I mean, SPIVA data shows that active managers underperform their benchmarks by and large over the long run. I've got some stats here. 78% of funds underperformed the S&P ASX 200 over the past decade, while more than 91% of funds underperformed the S&P 500 in the US over that same time period. When it was 1 year, it was, you know, a lot more outperformed. It was 42% in Australia outperformed, 49% in the US. I don't understand how that's even possible then that Over the short term, it would be better to go passive, not active.
1: Well, uh, (laughs) yeah. I mean, that's a fair point. The issue with that is that the managers that have outperformed their their markets on a one-year basis are very different very often from one year to the other. And that's the issue, right? That's what I'm telling you about (laughs) is that um, if you want to go for a tactical trade and you just choose one manager... Based on how much they they performed last year, the odds will be against you. You know uh, what you'll find in, in manager selection is that very often the alpha or the manager outperformance over a, a, their over a their reference benchmark is what we call mean reverting, meaning it comes and goes. Right, so when they've made a lot of performance, then they let go of a lot in the following period. So there is momentum in fund manager alpha, and <laughs> there is reversion as well. So I think and and that's where um my team and, and I'm really blessed with with you know uh, a team of, of experts in the field spend a lot of time working on is that what are the underlying manager biases all managers have biases right they perform better in some specific market conditions and market regimes so what we what we spend a lot of time doing when we're looking for managers, is looking at all these biases. And I say that in a positive fashion, not not in a negative fashion, right? All the tilts they might have, or the, the ways that they have of managing their portfolio. Are there a bit more value? Are there a bit more equality? And we will find that in some market regimes, they will work a lot better than others. And when you cross-check that with you know, the due diligence that you do on the fund, okay, it's a good manager, we know that they perform well in those regimes, we know they perform less well in the, these other regimes, right? And so then you compare that against the regime that you are expecting to go into, and that's where the decision lies. And that's where, in my experience, you can achieve a much better hit rate in terms of manager selection and manager performance is by knowing um that number one your managers will always have biases they will always better uh, perform better in 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 certain environments but if you know that you're aware of that and you get the regime right then that's how you get the most out of these managers right also you need to line up the commitment in terms of when you hire a manager with the the view that they have in terms of you know how long they're holding securities for on average right so a lot of managers they will try to maximize the the return on any given position on sort of one to three year basis right do you intend to hold that manager for the same horizon because if you're holding them only for three months the odds are 90 percent it's not going to work right or you might get lucky but it's it's the odds are against you
0: Sounds like Morgan Stanley has a working crystal ball. I'm a little bit jealous.
1: I wish we had. I wish we had.
0: (laughs) Okay, moving on now. There's been criticism that passive index funds have made markets more inefficient, warping the market by disproportionately allocating capital to companies with larger index weights. Even Michael Burry has come out as a major critic, arguing passive investing has made markets more vulnerable to volatility. Do you agree with that?
1: listen through my uh, 17 years in finance i've i've read countless articles from etf managers saying that there were no value in active management and countless articles from fund managers saying that etfs were destroying the market so you know as for everything it's probably the the truth is um in, in the middle so I, I don't think it's destroying efficiencies at all I think if you're a fund manager, if anything, that creates um, opportunity for you because it does create some crowding, right? So people rush into the same instruments, playing the same thematic. The sort of flow and impact from that is not all stocks within one sector or within one region, even if it's the best performing region are good, right? So we saw that massive outperformance, of the tech sector in the us for about 15 years right and no one questioned that and people piled up in you know tech etf or nasdaq etf which is not only tech but sort of new economy thematic or tilted towards the new economy thematic um and you know so yes probably a lot of lower quality companies got a free ride out of the fact that people wanted big exposure to those higher quality names at the top of the index. And those got a free ride and a free pass maybe as well uh, from the market for about 15 years. And now that interest rates have risen, and now that earnings prospects are looking more challenging, some of these companies have struggled in the last 12 or 18 months. That's why you heard about the term that you never heard before, or at least it was certainly not as common, unprofitable tech, right? And that's where we started to disseminate between profitable tech and unprofitable tech. But if anything, and you are a a fund manager, suddenly for a number of years, those market inefficiencies can persist and make your job frustrating. Not impossible, but frustrating because those sort of less good companies would still perform well. And that's why probably one of the key reasons why long short managers struggled in the past decade, right? Because by being long everything, you were getting such a strong performance and, and shorting cost a lot of money. And was hard to make money out of the shorts, whereas now conditions are a lot more challenging. And finally, you know, there is a lot of dislocation, as I was alluding to earlier. And it creates a a fantastic hunting ground for managers, right? So in the long run, the managers, you know, this crowding ends up creating opportunities for active managers as well.
0: I want to get out Morgan Stanley's working crystal ball, as we mentioned before. We've obviously right. seen massive... Let me take it out of my
1: bag. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We've obviously seen massive innovation and transformation in the ETF market over the past three decades. What do you think the market will look like in 10 years' time?
1: <laughs> the, the market's still young, especially in Australia. It feels like we are um, playing catch up to um, to the US. And... Um, in in Europe, where the the market is is a lot bigger in terms of AUM and in terms of um, ETF, but clearly, clearly, uh, I mean, hats off to the uh, to, to the ETF providers here. We um, the growth in in ETF has been uh, nothing short of phenomenal. I think in um, the field of you know responsible investing, impact investing, etc., there's plenty more uh, we can do. Very often. Um, a number of these strategies tend to be tilted towards just uh, new energy um but we can go a lot wider than that and look at, you know, impact and, you know, positive investment versus negative screens as well, et cetera. So I think there will be plenty, plenty more in the field as well. Um, and, and that's a very welcome development. The market also will continue to be a lot more granular. People will still, you know, dig in for new, um, uh, factors and of alpha generation, and we will see more and more of them at the region level with in fixed income as well that's probably um, a space where there's more work to be done all of that will follow the the findings of uh, you know academics uh, in in a lot of uh, places probably as well Um, what we are seeing is a trend that you know a a lot of alternatives start by being very exclusive and very illiquid and then they make it to, to the more like sort of accessible end of the market very often via managed funds in more liquid instruments. And then, you know, the sort of end of the journey is having uh, daily liquid um, alternatives. Um, some hedge funds do that, and ETF is, is a decent wrapper for that. And we're seeing that probably a lot more developed overseas than what it is in Australia. It comes with a lot of constraints, so I'm not expecting that uh, to, to land here tomorrow, but certainly uh that's a field where there's probably more offering uh overseas than than here in Australia and also the new asset class uh, you know regardless of you know uh, one's view on these new asset class certainly um you know ETF provide provide an easy way uh, to access uh some cryptocurrencies um easily it's easier and and more friendly for a number of investors that don't want to engage uh with other means to access that another way as well for in another new asset class which is a market that we are in any case expecting to grow substantially um is carbon credit right so carbon credit is a new asset class probably you know, right now we can consider that as a, as an alternative. It is an it is an alternative to you know long only bonds and long only equities, um, and it fills a gap in the market and it also clearly um, satisfy a need uh, for us as a society in a decades in the decades uh, forward. And uh, you know, ETF is probably a decent instrument uh, to get exposure to that.
0: How about fees? I feel like that's probably the question that listeners will want to know. You yeah. know, will we see continued yeah. pressure downwards on fees?
1: I, th- you know, I think so, and I think uh, it follows a sort of natural journey where you know the bigger the market, the more the efficiencies or the operational leverage for those. ETF providers and the more they, they are able to then uh, get the fees. So it's it looks like it's a market that's meant to grow. So over time, I expect most fees will, will continue to uh, to drift down. But to, to be frank with you, I think being fee conscious is very important. But the fees are not uh, the um, you know, th- they are not everything right. And And sometimes I think we get too fixated on fees suddenly again right i just want to put it out there that uh we are um very very conscious that um it is very important because paying too much fee it can eat into the compounding of your returns over time right but the same way missing out on, on returns right does not give you enough of this compounding impact so it's not always a matter of fees it's also a matter of investment opportunities and that's why going back to the conversation we had earlier even though most of our you know multi-asset portfolios our model portfolios within Morgan Stanley right now are invested through passive investments um when we think the time is right um We are happy to invest into active investments because what matters in the end to the client and to us as, you know, the manager of the asset is the after fee return, right? And sometimes you have to pay fee to get a superior return.
0: Okay. I want to go a little bit more granular now. Back in December, you told us that you were very bullish on fixed income over both the long and short term. Is that still the case? And are there any fixed income ETFs that you'd like to call out?
1: Yeah, well, listen, um, ha- hasn't changed too much. I mean, clearly, we, we uh, I think we wrote a piece that we um, uploaded onto Livewire, I believe, uh, around October of last year, uh, where I think the title was Buy Bonds Now If You Haven't, right? And, um, and we carried on with that trade uh, for a while. Um, of course bond yields backed up early this year late last year early this year and got a bit in the way of uh, this trade as a tactical trade but our view was that the two key headwinds that made bond returns so (laughs) dramatic in 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 a bad fashion in in 2022 so those headwinds would, would turn neutral this year i Rising inflation, rising interest rates. Right? We were expecting inflation to start coming off in the first half of the year, and we thought that interest rates uh, would go on pause um, at some point in the first quarter or in the first half of this year, both in Australia and in the, the US. Um, the, the view hasn't changed. We're still expecting, you know, central bankers will pause, probably a bit later than we uh, first thought, but uh, clearly inflation is on a downtrend. As well, it's, 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 it's going to be a battle, right? It's going to, it's not going to be, um, a, a matter of month of inflation, but certainly, uh, inflation has peaked and is going down. So these, headwinds will gradually turn into tailwinds. And what this means is also that in a context where we are late, already late in this post-COVID economic cycle, um, that the diversification properties of bonds are back. What I mean by that is that unlike last year, when we will see weakness in equities, we should see strengths in bonds. Why? Because this time the weakness in equities we believe is tied to the fear of a recession. What happens during a recession? Bond yields are very well bid because then there's the expectation that central banks will need to slash interest rates uh, to counter uh, the recessionary prospects, right? So net-net, we thought in this environment, Bonds diversification are back. Also, one very important element is that the carry or the income was back as well. And and when we advise to buy bonds, you know, bond yields for the the ten year maturity were in excess of four percent, both in the U.S. and in Australia. And and what we've been advising our clients is that bonds are, bond yields are still going to be volatile. Um, but anytime they are back at or around four percent it's a good time to be uh, piling up so our overweight to bonds has remained we continue uh, to be positive uh, in the space but mostly through government bonds right and um, and in terms of instruments listen uh, one thing that's um, you know, not always easy to pitch, right? In terms of implementation, because they are notoriously boring investments, but just government bonds, you know, medium to long duration uh, government bonds. In Australia, we do that via uh, VGB, the Vanguard uh, Government uh, Bond uh, ETF. And for international bonds, uh, we do that via VIF, which is the, the Vanguard International uh, fixed income. We have hardly any credit uh, allocation in our uh, portfolios. We have a little bit of investment grade credit relatively short duration in australia it's vacf we think that the australian market is of higher quality and also the front end of the curve was offering a decent premium plus the credit spreads a few months ago especially versus uh its us peer uh, and we thought it was a lot more priced for the, uh, the the challenging environment ahead of us so we hold no direct credit allocation to um, investment grade or high yield uh, outside of Australia, so we're very conservative, right? We're very, very conservative. But listen, we're still getting a very decent uh, carry. It hovers between three and a half and four percent, a little bit than three and a half uh, as we speak. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very decent instrument, especially in a context where we are still, you know, quite bearish. Uh, on markets and we are expecting further weakness in equity, so further upside uh, in bond prices.
0: Okay, I have a little bit of a fun exercise for us to finish off the podcast today. If I was looking at building a portfolio of listed products today, and you could only pick one ETF from each asset class, you've talked about a few from fixed income just now, but what would you choose?
1: Um, listen, in Australia right now we are um, we're we positive on Australian equities um, versus the rest of the market. So as a whole, we are underweight equities, but we have an overweight on Australia versus international. Given we, we are expecting Australian economy uh, to outperform um, its developed market peers this year, you know, earnings volatility is lower; it's a more defensive uh, market, and we're the yield is quite interesting so you know a very core simple exposure uh, to Australian equities via the A200 ETF, which is a, a very, uh, cheap one as well. We think it's just the way to go. Um, for international markets, what we like, um, probably we're going a bit more exotic there. Um, we think, you know, late in the cycle, like what we are right now, you want to be both, uh, you want to be defensive and how can you play defense? We think through, Uh, there's two ways. One is by holding companies that have lower volatility than the market. There's an ETF, uh, the iShares, uh, minimum volatility ETF that does that, uh, very well. WVOL, um, it invests in uh, companies that have, as I said, lower volatility than the market, but also there's an optimization component where they make sure that the blend also results in a portfolio that has sufficient diversification and low volatility properties in times of stress. So that's something that could, that usually performs very well late in the cycle and, and into the downturn phase, um, of the, uh, economic cycle. Um, a bit more, um, uh, how to say, uh, less defensive, um, as a whole uh, in terms of beta to the market, but in still defensive in terms of thematic is seeking for equality. Right. So seeking for equality. What do we mean by equality? So companies that are able to grow above the, the market average in a more consistent and sustainable fashion and with a stronger balance sheet. Right. These are the sort of companies that you want, especially at a time when interest rates are quite high. Um, and so an instrument such as Qual Devenic um MSCI quality. Uh, ETF uh, will give you a good exposure to those companies. Um, if you're a stock picker, you can probably do even better by, you know, seeking companies. Of greater quality at a reasonable price, but uh, probably harder to source directly via uh, an ETF. And that's probably where you want to uh, go active, by the way. Um, And in terms of bonds, as I mentioned already, you know, just going core government allocation, VGB and VIF, uh, we think just does the trick right now. So, you know, a very simple portfolio, um, but a portfolio that's done uh, fairly well in the last 12 months and since the beginning of the year as well. You know, if, in in those very volatile times, what matters the most uh, is not to be fancy, right? It's to stay out of danger um, and remain uh, quite conservative, but still on the lookout for opportunities.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Alex. I really enjoyed that interview. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to sign up to livewiremarkets.com so you don't miss out on Livewire's listed series. We'll see you next time.